heartbreaking story out of New York City. Biden voters turning on each other. 17-year-old Muslim teen suspected of murdering a young black man who simply wanted to be gay and to make romance, to make gay romance and dance around in his underwear. It's crazy, man. Learning more about the man killed in a possible hate crime Saturday while pumping gas in Brooklyn. Police are still looking for whoever did it. CBS 2's Hannah Klieger spoke. Well, he wasn't just uh, pumping gas in Brooklyn. He was dancing around in his underwear and he was told to cut it out. And he then got into a confrontation. And shockingly, when these uh, Muslim teens collided with these young gay uh, men, the the Muslim teens seem to have uh, defeated the... The gay dancers. Pretty shocking. With friends who knew the victim, and she's live in Midwood. Hannah? And Maurice and Christine, police have identified that victim as 28-year-old O'Shea Sibley. Friends describe him as a professional dancer, and police say he was fatally stabbed following an argument. And this guy, he just had, he had a smile that would light up a room. This is the kind of dance that he was doing. I mean, why would... Why would people take offense, right? You're just pumping gas at a gas station and some wonderfully talented, you know, young gay dancer starts voguing around in his underwear and these Muslim youths, like, they got really upset and told him to cut it out and he wouldn't cut it out and he started arguing with them about how he should have the freedom to be gay and uh, it didn't didn't go too well for right here at this gas station. Neighbors say he was always seen dancing when he was outside. Since when in this country is gay joy a crime? This is killing me. Why should gay joy be a crime? Gay hate is a crime. Gay joy should not be a crime. And investigators believe that's what he was doing the night he was killed. They were filling up on gas and they were just voguing, doing crazy. I can promise you, I wasn't there, but I can tell you, even from the glimpse of the video that I saw, that's just how they are. If he comes out here and he stops the music, he just starts dancing and voguing and carried on. He was a man known for his dance moves. Today, he's mourned by neighbors who believe he was the victim of a hate crime. He shows his colors up. He's not afraid of that. But he doesn't go out there and say, oh, I'm this and that. But as soon as you see me, don't have to ask the surprise game, man. Surveillance video shows the victim involved in a dispute with a group of people outside this gas He's just wearing, like, pink underwear shorts and voguing at a gas station, and he's asked to cut it out, and he argues back. Gas station Saturday night. Witnesses say they were dancing when a man walked up to them and allegedly made homophobic comments. Police say the two groups of people argued, and that's when one man allegedly stabbed Sibley. This witness, who wanted to remain anonymous, says he tried to break up the argument. He pulled out a knife and he just stabbed him, and he ran away. Neighbors say he danced all the time. He had to come out here dancing, happy, going to the store, happy, going to the happy. Everybody. I found out yesterday. He told me he passed away. So why? I didn't know that. He was cracking up in the door. A spokesperson for the Ailey organization where Sibley was a participant said in a statement in part, O'Shea had incredible energy in the studio and was loved by instructors and fellow students. Police say they're searching for this man in a black shirt and red shorts who they believe is responsible for his death. He's so this little kid here is apparently responsible for the death of this big old dancing gay dancer dude with a smile that just lights up a room. Described as in his 20s with dark hair. I'm so angry. I'm really angry. I 
And the mere fact is that's a life lost over a simple thing. So the, the gay dancers, right, they, they went into this confrontation. Like, they kept coming back, all right? They wanted to stir things up. And I'm going to suspect that when gay dancers collide with intense Muslims, that uh, most of the time intense Muslims are going to win that physical confrontation. And they could have just argued, could have talked and just left. You didn't have to bring the violence in. Sources say police now know the name of that suspect, but so far, no Just a uh, heartbreaking man. Like, the guy just wants to dance, man. Just wants to dance, make romance, right? And then why do people have to hate? Right? That he, all he wants to do is vogue, man. He just wants to dance around in his pink underwear, and there are haters out there. Man, is this like, is this what liberal fascism looks like? Is this, is this full-on liberal fascism? Maybe this is what Jenna Goldberg was, was talking about. All right, uh, if books could kill, the podcast is taking a look at liberal fascism. Have you ever seen the cover of this book? Oh, God, isn't it like the, the smiley face with like a Hitler mustache? That is right. Ooh. I got to say... It was a good idea. It stops being good after the cover, but the cover kind of rules, I have to admit. Um, yeah, it's a smiley face with a little Hitler mustache, and that is Jonah Goldberg, the author, mm-hmm. telling you that liberal fascism is sort of fascism with a polite face. Fascists are known for being like too nice, yeah. too accepting. Now, this book, in the broadest strokes, is about how it's actually liberals who are kind of fascists, and mm-hmm. not just that, but... Fascism itself is a liberal project more than a conservative one. Ooh, history teaches us. So if you've ever heard someone say, like, did you know that Nazis were socialists? Right. (laughs) This book is sort of like the origin story for a lot of those arguments. Oh, yeah. You can sort of infer based on the basic description of the thesis that this is not a real history book. Right. Right. Jonah Goldberg is not a historian. He is a pundit. Mm -hmm. The project of the book is not to explain history. It is to provide Arguments for modern conservatives who are being called fascists. Uh, And he opens the book by talking about that, by by saying that conservatives are sort of recklessly targeted with accusations of fascism. And like his whole project is just turning those guns around and pointing them back at liberals. This is ammunition for the arguments in your head that you're having with like fake college sophomores. Right. The purple haired feminists that exist exclusively on right wing websites and not in the real world. This is how to own those little chipmunks. You know, a lot of our books are super popular with the public, but ignored by the serious people. Mm-hmm. This one is basically the exact opposite. Mm. It's not a mega bestseller. It sells well, but it's very popular among conservatives and especially like conservative elites. Uh, mm-hmm. Paul Ryan. Yeah, this book is very popular with conservative elites. It's very popular with people like Dennis Prager, very popular with right wing talk show hosts. And of course, it's absolutely ridiculous. All right. There's no such thing as liberal fascism right uh, paul Gottfried talks about this in his terrific book fascism the career of a concept fascism has never played a major role in the united states but uh, jenna goldberg's a widely featured star of the murdoch media empire in this book here by paul Gottfried on fascism syndicated republican columnist he goes after democratic politicians who according to him are pursuing economic and social policies similar to those of mussolini and hitler and people like dennis prager and you know, all sorts of other right-wing talk show hosts, they take this seriously. This is like a major work of conservative, you know, intellectual achievement among conservative pundits. I mean, that's how bad 
right-wing punditry and thought is these days. So programs aimed at American youth are compared to Mussolini and Hitler's programs. American public works programs are seen as derivative or closely related to fascist and Nazi plans of the 1930s. Right. So here's the main point of the book. If Democratic partisans in Hollywood have gone after Republicans as fascists, then the other party should be allowed to play the same game. Looking at Ronnie Goodman's terrific book on conservative theories of cultural oppression, right? Jonah Goldberg says that his whole motivation for writing this book, Liberal Fascism, which argues that modern liberalism and fascism grew out of the same intellectual roots in 20th century progressivism, which is absolutely absurd. But uh, Goldberg says, ever since I joined the public conversation as a conservative writer, I've been called a fascist and a Nazi by smug, liberal, know-nothing, sublimely confident of their ill-informed prejudices. So it's understandable that uh, most people would dismiss the ad hominem attacks of conservatives as just too contrived and ridiculous to warrant serious protected offense. But by contrast, liberal ad hominem strike conservatives as eminently sincere, sublimely confident as Goldberg says, and they don't get shrugged off with the same ease. They provoke these formal book-length rebuttals. So back to the If Books Could Kill podcast. Ryan, the former Speaker of the House and Mitt Romney's running mate, cited it as an influence back in the day. Uh, Ted Cruz said that he was a big fan in the 2016 campaign. Mm -hmm. It was a grueling book to experience, Michael. Just like arduous to read because every page is political philosophy, which you know I hate. Mm, Yes. And (laughs) also history that you read and you're like, that doesn't sound right. And you have to look it up and you're like, no, I guess it wasn't really right. Right. It was a nightmare. To try to like debunk this book. My indicator of how infuriating a book is is how often I'm doing alt tab to go over to like another window to be like, okay, I gotta fucking Google this now. Right, right. This seems like a uh, a very free. So looking at the comments section on my videos, so Sunny Bonnell says, "How many super predators have you eliminated, Luke? None, right? So my point is that to be a man is to provide and to protect. You should try to take care of the ones you love, such as your family and your community." That's a laughable definition, right, that, that a man should provide and protect. So to, suddenly this is laughable. In a modern, peaceful society, you don't need to be a trained killer to provide for your family. No, but you should provide and protect. So you should work hard so that you can ensure that the ones you love, such as your family, are best provided for and uh, can grow up in a relatively safe neighborhood. You should support the men in blue. You should support the cops because, generally speaking, they are you know, a significant deterrent to crime. You should support law and order in general. You should develop order in your own life, starting with cleaning your room, develop order in your own life, and then that order can expand out from you and have a profound effect on people around you. And uh, you should talk about the need for law and order and the, the need for tight enforcement of laws against violent criminals, right? If we just locked up violent criminals for a long, long time, we could reduce our murder rate to 5% of what it is now. But uh, Sonny says people's roles have become specialized and society is stratified such that men can focus on many things now. Uh, great. Provide and protect right? should uh, be a focus for men. If society breaks down or you live in a violent society where provide and protect is necessary, that's something conservatives love to imagine. Well, why would not a sane person join a neighborhood watch or get together with his neighbors, uh, form bonds with people around you so that when when stuff gets real, when rampaging, raping, 
Black Lives Matter terrorists are flooding through your neighborhood. I know Dennis Dale thinks that Jews are somehow just uh, exempt from the murderous rampage of Black Lives Matter. But let's remember the mainstream media is entirely on the side of Black Lives Matter. You know, Fortune 500 companies entirely on the side of Black Lives Matter. Almost all our leading institutions entirely on the side of Black Lives Matter. Many, if not most, of our Fortune 500 companies sent money to Black Lives Matter, that terrorist organization that uh, drove up murder rates, that drove up violent crime rates, that uh, drove up pedestrian death rates and driving death rates by discouraging law enforcement from doing their job. So supporting the boys in blue, right? supporting law enforcement, supporting tough sentencing for violent criminals is one way that you can help to provide and protect for the people you care about. Lucroft responds, Republicans are law and order, first step act, law and order tweets, what is 40 smoking? Yeah, if you can promote law and order, you're doing something good. You're taking you know, some small step towards creating a more orderly society, and that can include tweeting, right? That can include podcasting. That can include talking to your friends. And uh, for all Republican flaws and for all the stupidity of the first step act, Consistently, Republicans are far more supportive of significant sentences for violent criminals than Democrats are. Republicans are significantly more in favor of law and order, of enforcing the law, of having police go out and arrest people doing horrible things. Right? Overwhelmingly, Republicans are far more supportive of these things than Democrats. Now, I know this isn't exciting. I know Richard Spencer has all these very articulate and sophisticated arguments for why people should vote for the Democrats. Uh, to me, violent crime is the number one problem in this country, and Republicans, almost to a man, are far better on the issue than Democrats. Right? I know it strikes you as boring that we could reduce the murder rate to 10% of what it is now simply by imprisoning violent criminals for a long, long time. But it's such a, a boring, obvious step that would dramatically improve the quality of life in this country. So when it gets real, right? when, when things go down, when the mob is baying for your blood, when the, when the mob is outside your door and drooling at the prospect of raping your wife, your sister, your, your, your daughters, right? Who's going to light up for you, right? Who's going to be there by your side if the cops are overwhelmed or they're not interested, right? You need to have bonds with the community, with the neighborhood watch program, with your church, with your synagogue, where people band together to protect each other from being terroristic you know, violent, rampaging, raping Black Lives Matter terrorists. Don't you want boys lighting up on your side? Uh, boys lining up on your side? Like armed men who abide by the law and who are willing to put themselves on the line to help protect their families and the ones they care about? Right? So Jenna Goldberg's book is absurd. Right? It's not a, a cogent argument. But I have a little bit of sympathy for the sentiments, because to be conservative, yeah, is to be constantly accused of, of being a fascist. So I can, I can kind of understand the emotion behind his book, even if his arguments are absurd. Alt-tabber. Do you know anything about Jonah Goldberg himself? He's just like a, a generic National Review guy. That's right. right? Uh, he's still, I think, an anti-Trump Republican to this day, which I guess adorable shows some some level of intellectual yeah. honesty or steadfastness relative to his peers. He's only against the liberal kind of fascism, though. That's right. <laughs> He's yeah. not really animated by like the fascism fascism. He's working on like his Trump is a liberal book or something. Yeah, as yeah, we speak. Yeah. <laughs> he is a Nepo baby. His mom was a literary agent and Republican activist 
Okay, that's a ridiculous critique. Fascism plays no role and never has played any role in American politics, right? Fascism is something that only existed in Italy between World War One, World War Two, and possibly in Nazi Germany as well. Fascism generically is not racist, so uh, Germany was was kind of off the beaten path of, of fascism. Still, this left-wing critique with all its cheap shots is is amusing, right? It, it does make some 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 good points. So, obviously, Jonah Goldberg's partisan attack is far from convincing, right? The early American critics who, you know, were supporting progressivism, the American New Dealers, their social democratic allies who praised the Italian fascist model while establishing an American welfare state, they weren't fascists themselves, right? When was the last time the Obama administration extolled either Mussolini or Hitler when trying to bail out its supporters, right? Goldberg's application of the fascist branding iron has its origin in in intramural politics, right? It's primitive, it's stupid, it is not coherent, it's not cogent, it's not a strong argument, it's just part of a game which the advocates of one party cast aspersions on those of the other. But this is the kind of low-level rhetoric that dominates, you know, right-wing punditry, uh, what passes for right-wing thought today and right-wing talk radio and Fox News, Right. Modern industrial democracies have huge welfare states, right? but that doesn't make them fascist. Right? Supporting uh, socialized medicine does not make you fascist. Right? If you want to condemn the Democrats for, for building and sustaining a large administrative state, then you'd have to pretty much make the same case against the other party, the Republicans, who also largely support the same thing. And where does uh, Jonah Goldberg ever suggest that he would rescind the supposedly fascist handiwork that he attributes to the Democrats, right? Because most of the Republican Party supports this supposedly fascist legislation. Who, uh, fun fact, was the person who told Linda Tripp to record her phone calls with Monica Lewinsky. God, if only the never-Trumpers could harness like 1% of the energy of the never-Clintons. It's like fusion versus vision. All right, so let's talk about the thesis here. He says that, quote, fascism is and always has been a phenomenon of the left. Yes. Many of the ideas and impulses that inform what we call liberalism come to us through an intellectual tradition that led directly to fascism. Oh, okay, so I'm already seeing the pattern here where it's like the ideas, the impulses, the tradition, yeah. and not like the outcomes. Yes, he uses the term echoes quite a bit. <laughs> a huge percentage of this book is him being like, look, obviously this isn't the same thing as you right, know, right. the brown shirt Nazis, but it echoes a lot of the same ideas. When you think about it, me asking your pronouns and me putting you in the gulag are roughly the same thing. He, I mean, it's it's incredibly funny how often he gives that caveat of like, I'm not saying they're the same. And then we'll make a direct <laughs> analogy to like Nazi Germany. <laughs> so a couple of big caveats up top. When he says liberalism, he is referring to modern progressivism, mm. um, not like. So people rarely say what they mean. People rarely mean what they say. Yeah, on its surface, on its plain meaning, on its literal meaning, Janet Goldberg's book, Liberal Fascism, is absolutely ridiculous. But that doesn't mean that underneath the surface of all that nonsense, there aren't some good points. So he writes in Liberal Fascism, the unique threat of today's left-wing political religions is precisely that they claim to be free of dogma. That's a good point. Leftists, generally speaking, don't consider themselves in the sway of dogma. They see themselves as having transcended dogma, and they believe that they exist in the reality community. Instead, they profess to be champions of liberty and pragmatism, which in their view is self-evident good, 
They eschew ideological concerns. They make it impossible to argue with their most basic ideas and exceedingly difficult to expose the totalitarian temptations residing in their hearts. Right, so at least the beginning of that is true. Right? People on the left, generally speaking, claim to be free of dogma. And people on the left, of course, are entitled to their ideological convictions. Right? We, we all need ideology to make sense of the world. But whereas conservatives and libertarians have to openly defend their ideologies, people on the left lie to themselves and to the world about their ideological agendas. They disguise their ideological agendas with these Trojan horse, horse cliches, these smug assertions that they are simply pragmatists, that they are just fact finders, that they are empiricists who are clear-headed as to what works. Now, you get a rampaging mob, you know, baying for your blood at your door, and you try to protect yourself, right? The left can immediately come out with 15 different academics on why you're wrong, why you're wrong to, to take up guns to protect yourself against a, a mob that's baying for your blood and salivating at the prospect of raping your daughters, right? So the left dominates academia, and they have, you know, very verbally astute academics, you know, on call at any time to come on the media to condemn you know, traditionalists who are simply trying to protect their way of life. So liberals claim to be pragmatic and empirical, but in reality, this is just hiding you know, their own mystification and obscurantism. Right? Liberals prefer to associate pragmatism and empiricism right, with uh, you know, all that is you know, self-obviously true, Right, but uh, liberals and, and people on the left have their own hero systems. Right, they have their own partisan blinders, just like uh, people on the right. Right, to have ties, to, to be bonded to people, is to simultaneously get blinded. So, National Council for Accreditation for Teacher Education, right, wants teachers guided by beliefs and attitudes related to values such as caring, fairness, honesty, responsibility, and social justice, right? They all sound lovely, but social justice is not a non-ideological concept that simply draws on ethics or morality or the overall need for goodness in society. It's a deeply ideological set of left-wing assumptions that most practitioners of social justice refuse to openly and sincerely acknowledge. So conservatives a little bit tired of the, the game being rigged against them. That uh, liberals won't come out and you know, claim you know, who, who they really are. I mean, liberals place their faith in priestly experts who just know better, who plan, who exhort, who badger and scold and, and bully you. And they're always ready to come on TV with their superior verbal skills and you know, tear traditionalists into shreds classical liberalism, which he considers to be like conservative, right? Like libertarianism. He considers that oh, to be right. functionally conservative. Right. So and that's important because like Mussolini expressly said that he's anti-liberal and what he meant was right. classical liberalism. So obviously Goldberg has to make sure that that's not what he's saying. He's talking about you, right. our democratic voting listener. This is an extended subtweet of Rachel Maddow. Yeah, let's be right. clear. Right. The whole book is very kitchen sink. He's constantly drawing every parallel he can between liberals and fascists and liberalism and fascism. Um, he will find associations between historical progressives and historical fascists, some of which are legitimate some of which are a stretch. And then he'll also just try to connect these ideals in like very, very abstract ways, right? Do you know who else was a vegetarian? <laughs> I'm expecting that to come up. That will come up. Yeah. Okay. So that's, okay. that, is a, that is not a small part of this book. Uh, impossible to satirize the, yeah. the argument yeah. he's making in advance. <laughs> so the single biggest issue with this book is that if you want to draw connections between liberalism and fascism, you probably need like coherent 
and accurate definitions of both terms. Or do you? <laughs> so I'm going to send you his definition. Yeah, so on the face of it, this book is absolutely absurd. Right, how on earth could you compare modern liberalism to fascism? But uh, Jonah Goldberg argues that uh, fascism has always been a phenomenon of the left, and if we believe otherwise, it's only because the fascist label has been projected onto the right by a complex slate of hand by liberals eager to slough off their own sins on the conservatives. Now, fascism is definitely something of the right, but he's got a point here that liberals are often eager to slough off their own sins onto conservatives, right? The, the political spectrum, as is presented by our elites, right, as is taught in Political Science 101, is largely an artifact of the liberal culture, of the cultural propaganda that serves to elicit animus and contempt against conservatives for a single word of formal condemnation has ever been uttered, right? So this is a revolt against a rigged game. And you can't expect people who are battling against a rigged game always to present the most moderate, cogent, empirical, realistic argument. Sometimes you just get a cry from the heart, which is liberal fascism. No fascism. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we are now (laughs) reading a definition of fascism. Fascism is a religion of the state. It assumes the organic unity of the body politic and longs for a national leader attuned to the will of the people. Mm -hmm. It is totalitarian in that it views everything as political and holds that any action by the state is justified to achieve the common good. It takes responsibility for all aspects of life, including our health and well-being, and seeks to impose uniformity of thought and action, whether by force or through regulation and social pressure. (laughs) Everything, including the economy and religion, must be aligned with its objectives. Any rival identity is part of the quote-unquote problem and therefore defined as the enemy. I will argue that contemporary American liberalism embodies all of these aspects of fascism. It actually says liberal sim, but I'm assuming that's your typo and not his. You assume incorrectly. That is a typo that is present in the definition of fascism in the first edition of this book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm willing to forgive a couple typos, but the thing that sticks out to me is this, whether by force or through regulation and social pressure. Right, right. Because, like, what people object to about fascism is the force part. If it's regulation, then we're just talking about, like, yeah, the government has, like, food safety laws. And then we all don't get sick. You can see that he's sort of like creating a definition such that he can bring in like really mundane government regulation. And it is overwrought. It is hysterical. It is not cogent. All right. It is a a cry from the heart. But he's talking about this totalizing spirit, this, this desire for total control to bully and to dominate, to elevate and to educate and to make, you know, everybody a, a good leftist. And, this obsession with organic order that pervade the German fascist mind, well, Goldberg sees it you know, filling the, the liberal mind today, a, a totalizing spirit, which is why public health and the environment have loomed large for fascists and liberals alike. Right? We don't normally associate Nazism with nature preserves, sustainable forestry, the fight against air pollution, but the Nazis were among the first to take up these concerns. They were anti-smoking. They did have public health drives that uh, foreshadowed today's crusades against junk food, trans fats, and the like, right? These affinities may not just be entirely coincidences, but uh, they may be windows through which we may glance at leftism's and liberalism's subterranean imperiousness, which wants to dominate more and more of life, that cannot be at ease with people having the right to, say, educate their, their own children, right? With people 
driving cars, gas burning cars, right? There is a totalizing spirit on the left that wants to take you know, total control of you know, people's private lives, right? So the left thinks that its defense of freedom stands in stark contrast to the benighted moral authoritarianism of conservatism, right? But uh, fascism was always defined by its hostility to Christian morality, traditional morality, and the traditional family, which it hoped to replace with the authority of the state. And so fascism was very much opposed to conservatism. So conservatives who stand for traditional morality, Christian morality, the family, right, they now get painted as crypto-fascists, as incapable of thinking maturely about life and about sex. And it is now the liberals who want to invade the family, to breach its walls, to shatter its autonomy, to remove rights from, from parents, to take over the education of children. Right? And this is presented to the public as supporting education. But the liberal obsession with education is just the historical legacy of its totalizing impulse. Right? It wants to capture children in schools, just part of its larger effort to break the backbone of the nuclear family. Right? Gay marriage is not about marriage, it's about destroying the nuclear family, destroying marriage. Right? So that we become more at ease with the idea of just you know, a whole bunch of people just being easily available for sex without any kind of commitment, right? So the nuclear family is the institution that is most resistant to political indoctrination, and that is the institution that the left wants to destroy, right? The, the left-wing attacks on traditional morality proceed under the banner of enlightenment, but they they are uh, really trying to do something very different. Uh, reading from Ronnie Goodman's book here on conservative cultural oppression. Right. And social norms changing and things like that, right? And also social norms are just irrelevant to this because like a social norm, like, I don't know, it used to be cool to smoke and now like it's a lot less cool to smoke. There's no way that that's fascism. That's just like changing. Oh, there's, there's no way that that's fascism, Michael. <laughs> You're going to learn. He says fascism is the religion. Of so, yeah, Janet Goldberg's book is ridiculous, but he does have some good points, right? When he says that the the white male is the Jew of liberal fascism, all right, just the the role that Jews played for the Nazis, it's uh, not literally the same as how the liberal left regards the the white heterosexual male today, but it's an emotional, poetic similarity, right? Attacking you know, the white heterosexual Christian male provides people on the left with similar kinds of emotional satisfaction that anti-Semitism provided many Nazis. So just like the Jew, the white Christian heterosexual male is excoriated as the unique source of an unparalleled evil, the, the bearer of illegitimate privileges, someone whose all-pervasive social, political, and cultural influence must be exposed and curtailed in the name of the public good, which is the mission that has been adopted by the left. So yeah, on the surface, on a literal meaning, Werner Goldberg's liberal fascism is completely ridiculous, but the guy does have a glib facility with words that sometimes touch, if glancingly, on some real issues. Of the state where any action by the state is justified to achieve the common good. Yeah. I want to dissect this a little bit nerdily because there is <laughs> a problem here, which is that it's missing what most scholars agree is like the key component of fascism. Trains. Roger Griffin 
a scholar of fascism, defines fascism as palingenetic ultranationalism. Palingenesis essentially means a national rebirth. Mm. The idea that we as a people were once great and have somehow lost our way, but that we will restore our former greatness. Yeah, that's uh, a, a, a decent definition. And then there's the ultranationalist part, which means that the national rebirth will center around a specific identity, a specific in-group. Wait, so make America great again is like the perfect encapsulation of this, basically? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's, that's ridiculous. So liberal fascism, right, on literal reading, surface reading, or even a deeper reading, all right, just taking it literally completely absurd, right? Liberal fascism was poorly received by scholars of fascism. That's Ronnie Goldman. One does not have to be a scholar of fascism to suspect that Jenna Goldberg tried to establish a spurious, meaning false, affinity between fascism and liberalism by disingenuously abstracting some of liberalism and fascism's features away from their all-important historical context and philosophical rationales, treating these as mere side notes. Right? But liberal fascism is, at its core, a cry from the heart. Right? It's a conservative claim of cultural oppression. Its ultimate object is not to make a cogent argument. It is not to establish the moral equivalence of liberalism and fascism as historical phenomena. Its project is to level the playing field between liberals and conservatives as contemporary political actors. And it does this clumsily. Right? It does this unphilosophically. It does this superficially. It does this in a vulgar manner. But still... Jonah Goldberg is up against the left-wing orientation of our major institutions. Right? Jonah Goldberg is trying to overthrow what he correctly sees to be a one-sided liberal-centric reading of American history, according to which there are only two perpetrators of official misdeeds, conservatives and America writ large. Right? Given that only conservatives can be bigots or tyrants, we will virtually never hear that the Palmer raids, the Prohibition or American eugenics were thoroughly progressive phenomena. And these are sins for which America itself must atone, but not liberalism. But the truth is that the liberal closet has its own skeletons, as is the conservative scholar closet. Right? Today's liberals speak of fascism as an unmitigated evil, but their forebears often did speak approvingly of fascist movements. And that was because at the time they did feel they had a good deal in common with them. And so blind to this history, liberals today are also blind to their own tendencies, which they project onto conservatives. Liberals keep saying it can't happen here with a clever wink or an ironic smile to insinuate that the right is constantly plotting fascist schemes. But there has never been a fascist movement in the United States of any consequence. The liberal narrative conceals things to the benefit of liberals and at the expense of conservatives, so that really only conservatives are the bigots and the bad guys. And America writ large can be made to assume responsibility for the moral lapses of liberals and leftists because liberals have succeeded in convincing us that, uh, you know, fascism is uh, just something that is, you know, right next door to conservatism when in reality conservatism is completely opposed to fascism. Right? Liberals say that conservatives you know, differ from Nazis only by a matter of degree and that they're all just incipient fascists. That liberal fascism is less an indictment than a core for moral humility from the left, right? It's an attempt to reverse the historical amnesia that blinds the left to the nature of their own political impulses, their own total control, bullying, takeover impulses. So the ultimate aim of liberal fascism is not to quantify contemporary liberalism's affinities with fascism, but to qualify 
liberals as having totalitarian impulses. Everybody wants to rule the world, and that includes people on the liberal spectrum and the left-wing spectrum. And Jonah Goldberg wants to argue that it's conservatives, not liberals, who lie at the furthest removed from fascism. Which, whether that's true or not, at least it is a challenge to the dominant liberal worldview that the difference between conservatism and fascism is only one of degree. Now, liberalisms, liberals are nicer people than Gestapo agents, but Jonah Goldberg says this is owing not to the intrinsic impulses of progressivism, but to the traditional American values by which progressivism and leftism is constrained. Such factors as America's geographical size, ethnic diversity, Jeffersonian individualism, strong liberal tradition have combined to render American fascism, which is ridiculous, but American leftism milder, more friendly, more maternal than its foreign counterparts. Yeah, so every political philosophy, every religious philosophy, every cultural and political and social movement takes place within a particular context, right? So the time and the place, the geography, the demography of the society in which you get these cultural, religious, political currents, they are all going to have a profound effect on how these various political, religious, social, cultural phenomena demonstrate themselves. <laughs> Jonah does get a little bit owned by the fact that Trump's messaging is like relatively fascist. We've lost our national greatness. Let's restore it. He's also leaving out a lot of smaller things like nativism, militarism, heavy reliance on the police, right. all common features of fascism, according to scholars. Mm. And I'm not trying to say this as like a gotcha to be like, he got the definition of fascism wrong. I'm bringing it up because this is why fascism is considered right wing, right? It's about yeah. hierarchy and tradition, authority and order. Uh, but he leaves all of that out of his definition because then you might start to realize why every scholar on earth thinks that fascism is right wing. Right. He's basically leaving out all the parts that would make him sound like a fascist. Right. Like right. Fascism is obsessed with tradition and hierarchy and the use of force. And also, you're a fascist if you don't honor our brave first responders. Another little sleight of hand here is that Goldberg says that fascism is about using the state to achieve the common good. Oh, yeah. Uh right. So there is this naive belief among American right-wingers that uh, conservatism and the right-wing stands for smaller government, right? That's not really a huge part of what being on the right means. Right? Being on the right means standing for, for law and order, for tradition, for traditional ways of organizing life and family, right? It's not primarily about uh, lower marginal tax rates. So Ronnie Goodman has a great point here that uh, Jonah Goldberg's project with liberal fascism is ultimately psychoanalytic rather than historical. Right? It investigates the basic human impulses which assume various ideological shapes depending on the circumstance. Right. Americans have been lucky that uh, various political, cultural movements in this country have been sublimated and civilized by the American context. But the, the purpose of liberal fascism is not simply to indict liberals, but to subdue liberalism by isolating its essential core from the wider cultural currents in which that core has thus far remained camouflaged. The liberals hold themselves out as pragmatists and fact-finders, but underneath this self-image is a certain totalizing totalitarian sensibility on the left. Right? Everybody wants to rule the world, including the left. That, that tendency is also on the right, right. People on the left and the right have a psychological need for order, for progress, for consensus, for expertise, and for getting other people to go along. 
though. This is why conservatives refuse to take liberal idealism at face value. So you see in modern secular liberal humanism, all these disconcerting reversals. You've got dedication to others on the one hand, which tends to translate into self-indulgent feel-good responses. You've got rhetoric about a lofty sense of human dignity, but in reality, that means ever-increasing control of our private lives, powered by contempt and hatred by all the institutions being controlled by the left. You've got rhetoric about absolute freedom, but with increasing bureaucratic control and institutional control by liberal left elites, it leads to absolute despotism. You've got liberals claiming a flaming desire to help the oppressed, but it turns very quickly into an incandescent hatred for all who stand in the way. So the conservative claimant of cultural oppression sees that the sees that the seeds of these dark impulses are always germinating somewhere in the depths of the beautiful sounding liberal rhetoric. So liberals may often repudiate the heavy hand of political repression that comes from the left, but what they do not repudiate are the seeds of that repression, which lies in their sweeping vision of social left-wing liberal reform and the social unity that is implemented by the centralized authority of experts. Socialism means rule by experts. Communism means rule by experts. The further you go to the left, the more you have rule by experts as the dominant ideology and the more left-wing your regime, the more and more of life is turned over to control by unelected experts. Um, But as some (laughs) scholars pointed out when this came out, it's distinctly not about the common good. It's about in-group domination. It's the the good for one group of people. Fascism is very bad for some specific groups of people. Uh, The whole point of Goldberg's definition is that it's designed from the bottom up so that he can basically say that, like, anything the government does or any attempt to do anything for the common good is a little bit fascist, while also leaving out the elements of fascism that are just very obviously right-wing. Right. Throughout the book, he sort of defines conservatism as, like, laissez-faire libertarianism, which is, like, a very convenient way to define it if you're trying to avoid accusations of fascism, right? So he's clearly back filling this to fit his conclusions he's basically like the dictionary defines fascism as a woman with short hair with a talk show where she talks about the <laughs> russia investigation just, right. just do a merriam webster here maybe the single wildest part of this book is that despite it being half of the title he does not at any point just sit down and clearly define liberalism oh he says that he's referring to like modern american liberalism but he never concisely defines what that means to him Mm. Um, which again just allows him to evade the fact that like he if he just listed out the tenets of modern progressivism you might notice that many of them are not compatible with fascism right commitment to egalitarianism pluralism democracy all parts of modern progressivism right and i think all things you'd have a hard time squaring with fascism which is distinctly anti-egalitarian anti-pluralistic right because again fascism is about the ascendance and domination of the in-group right right so, yeah, on the surface, liberal fascism is outrageous and ridiculous, right? And people on the left identify their leftism and their liberalism you know, with noble pursuits. But what Goldberg is working at here is a poetic and psychoanalytic perspective that uh, the, the rhetoric doesn't necessarily match the reality, right? That much of history is accidental. And uh, you can't take what what people say as the truth about themselves. So from Goldberg's perspective, liberalism is ultimately a quantum 
of damned up energy that is waiting to be used somehow for something to bully and to tyrannize and to take total control of our private lives. Right? And this is at the core of the left-wing project. And how this core expresses itself will depend on circumstances and events, dear boy. So liberals are rationalists at heart. Conservatives are much more suspicious of rationalism because they see two things as much more powerful powerful than rationalism. One, the power of genes, and two, the power of early imprinting. But liberals believe that their hearts are pure, therefore their motivations are dispositive, meaning uh, good, right? But they they don't understand themselves. They they don't understand what, what drives them. They don't understand that they are part of a of another partisan project that they too have a hero system. So liberal fascism on a psychoanalytic account is a wake-up call for liberals to engage in the kind of Augustinian self-examination, to look deep below the surface of their ostensibly pure motives to try to discern the morally ambiguous, the all-too-human substrate of their motives, to recognize that these impulses can manifest themselves very differently under a changed set of political cultural conditions, and therefore whatever differences might exist between modern liberalism and forms of tyranny, right, they don't necessarily redound to liberals' moral credit. Right? Liberals and conservatives, people on the right and the left, and all our various good intentions, we're all morally at the mercy of fate. And frequently, our purported good intentions threaten to alter fate for the worst. So for every liberal incursion against America's traditional values, right, what happens is we get a further erosion of the inhibitions that have so far sublimated and civilized liberalism and leftism that have kept it in check, that have preserved preserved some parts of traditional American Culture. That's just like big picture philosophy words. There's also like human rights. Right? Like, what if not torturing prisoners goes too far? <laughs> fascist much? So yeah, uh, right now we're like 25 pages into this book. Uh, he, we are starting off with a definition of fascism that does not align with any scholarly definitions of fascism. Mm-hmm. He does not define liberalism at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, yet I am contractually obligated <laughs> to continue reading. <laughs> How many pages was this, Peter? It's like 500. Jesus <laughs> Christ, really? I don't understand why this keeps happening to me, but <laughs> I've got to start looking up page numbers before I agree to do a book. How do you stretch an argument this bad to that long? It's kind of impressive, honestly. One, one big feature of this book is that Goldberg is constantly saying, like, liberals and the mainstream media never talk about this. Oh, yeah, great. But he, like, doesn't actually ever provide any evidence of the information being ignored or suppressed right. or whatever. Right. And it often seems like stuff that's either common knowledge or at least well-known to people who are loosely familiar with history. Mm. For example, a huge part of the book, a big theme throughout, is pointing out that the early progressive movement had ties with the eugenics movement, yeah, uh, which is entirely true. Yeah. And also something I learned in like junior year history. Yeah. It's like when someone says like, did you know that it was Republicans who freed the yeah. slaves? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I paid attention in 10th grade, you fucking dumbass. Right. Okay, back to Ronnie Goodman's analysis. So it says, uh, liberals with their culturally oppressive, clever winks and ironic smiles had always ready with a murderous row of academic experts who are verbally gifted, who could just you know, tear apart any traditional conception of life. All right, what, what people on the left cannot see, but the conservatives who have to stand outside of power, outside of our major institutions, largely outside of academia, what, what we do see 
uh, the horrific potentials of the liberal left project, right? So for those standing outside the liberal left project, we see these beautiful speaking Manchurian candidates who operate according to a program that they themselves do not understand, who are imperceptibly just part of increments creating the conditions for their own final totalitarian activation. So the clever winks and ironic smiles of the dominant liberal left intelligentsia right, are not necessarily the truth, right? And the purpose of Jonah Goldberg's investigation here is to place these winks and smile in the historical context that would reveal their as yet unconscious subterranean horrific potential. That this is the way that Jonah Goldberg seeks to subdue liberalism by trying to argue it's another hero system, it's another partisan lens on life. The liberals will deploy science and academic experts to impugn the conservatives. But what Jonah Goldberg aims to demonstrate is that it is the left and the liberals who have forfeited these powers through their submission to liberalism itself, which operates through them in ways that elude their own cognition and control. So, I mean, people on the left, people liberals, have a great belief in the power of reason, in the power of the autonomous, buffered individual who's not you know, negatively affected by the various sexual and transgressive arrangements next door, right? That they can lead reflexive, highly disciplined lives, that they can create something out of their own reason and, and push their community, push themselves, push, push history forward, right? That's the, the liberal project. Conservatives have much more skepticism of the power of reason. And so conservatives will say, you know, liberals frequently are fooling themselves about the power of their own reason. Back to If Books Could Kill, a left-wing podcast dissecting Jonah Goldberg's book, Liberal Fascism. And, like, did anything uh, relevant happen in the 150 years since then? Did you want to mention, <laughs> or we're just going to do that and then skip to now? Now, I, I want to send an example. It's a nuanced one, uh, mm. and I'm sort of genuinely interested in your reaction here. Oh, my God. <laughs> Consider the infamous Tuskegee experiments where poor black men were allegedly infected with syphilis without their knowledge and then monitored for years. I have some comments already. <laughs> In the common telling, the episode is an example of Southern racism and American backwardness. In some versions, black men were even deliberately infected with syphilis as part of some kind of embryonic genocidal program. In fact, the Tuskegee experiments were approved and supported by well-meaning health professionals who saw nothing wrong or racist with playing God. As the University of Chicago's Richard Schweder writes, the study emerged out of a liberal progressive public health movement concerned about the health and well-being of the African-American population. If racism played a part, as it undoubtedly did, it was the racism of liberals. Not so liberals, by and large, are for affirmative action. They are for all sorts of measures to channel extra resources and favors towards reportedly oppressed minorities. And they defend their you know, racial policies as temporary measures through which to further realize the same ideals that they initially defended under the banner of color blindness. But people like Janet Goldberg note that the colorblind doctrine championed by leftists in the 1960s was just a very brief parenthesis in a very long progressive tradition of racism. Hmm. So Jonah Goldberg seeks to subdue liberalism, and he does it by recasting what purports to be a logical unfolding as a rationalizing ideology that conceals a much darker story. So the implication is that the brief 
parenthesis of colorblindness on the left of the 1960s was simply a conceptual expedient through which the progressive tradition transitioned from a cruder, overtly racializing talk of coolies to the subtler, more sophisticated variety of racism that motivates liberals' special solicitude for minorities via multiculturalism and affirmative action. So Jonah Goldberg, in his crude, clumsy, mid-level IQ way, is engaging in a political psychoanalysis that tries to distinguish liberalism proper from its civilizing sublimations to expose how an ostensibly repudiated past lives on in the hidden depths of the liberal left present, endowing leftism and liberalism with a subterranean structure that liberals will not acknowledge to others or even to themselves. Conservatives. But that's not how the story is told. Uh, Peter. All right, let's 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 break this down <laughs> because I think this is a nice archetypal Goldberg anecdote. He sort of like ascribes a pre-existing liberal narrative to this. Yeah, he's like everyone blames this on Southern racism, but it was actually liberal institutional racism. And it's like whoa, whoa, whoa. The way that it's taught, in my view, in my experience has been that it's an example of institutional racism. Like, he's just sort of being like, liberals might have taught you that this was the fault of racist Southerners. And it's like, no, I don't think that they did, dude. I don't think that anyone who genuinely learned about the Tuskegee experiments viewed it like this. You've just sort of, like, ascribed a narrative to it and then debunked that straw man narrative. I realize he's saying this before Twitter, but it's it's very similar to a lot of conservative arguments now where it's it's basically like, people on Twitter are saying this, but that's not true. It's like, well, what's the authority that you're pointing to? And then you throw on top of that, his references to how maybe these men were purposefully infected with syphilis, which is true, which is in fact a common myth. You know, me and Sarah did two episodes on the Tuskegee experiments, and they were like basically inspired by like this liberal idea of like we have to help black people. Like this was before yeah. there were any effective treatments yeah. for syphilis, and like it was done by large scale philanthropy. So like you could say that it was liberals, but also racism was so fucking bipartisan at that point. Yeah, it's not like the liberals were like let's do this to black people, and there were conservatives being like no. Yeah. That's against, like, Frederick Hegel or whatever. Everyone <laughs> thought that syphilis was different in black people than it was in white people because black people were, like, less evolved. Yeah, that yeah, was, like, yeah. a universal fucking belief at the time. I think this is a really good example of, like, a bunch of his an- – how a bunch of his anecdotes work where, like, there's a real truth in there, but he frames it in a really dishonest way. But that's not how the story is told. Yeah. And then also – he mentions, like, maybe maybe these men were purposefully infected with syphilis, which is a myth, and just sort of, like, unveils how hollow his commitment to the actual truth is, right? Right, it's like Wikipedia-level mistake. So, yeah, Jenna Goldberg's not a scholar, not a historian, uh, not particularly dedicated to truth, but when you understand his work as a cry from the heart, a very clumsy attempt at psychoanalysis, then you can, you can reap some benefit from it. And he... Goldberg does make some good points in his glib, shallow way. So he points that uh, out that uh, liberal left elites are not just personally content to indulge in Dionysian excess with sex and drugs and promiscuity and all sorts of uh, risky behavior. They, they compose today's secular royalty, and as Hollywood liberals and elites, they feel compelled to export these values that only the very rich and the very admired and the very disciplined and the very smart can afford. Adam Smith made this point in 1776, his book, The Wealth of Nations, that all sorts of vices that the middle and upper classes maybe have to get away with can just one time be life-destroying for people on the you know, working class, uh, for the poor. Madonna urges her followers to cast off their bourgeois sexual hang-ups. 
but she can simply settle down with a husband and kids once she gets tired of this. Lower middle class girls from Jersey City who take her advice are not so lucky. So Thomas Sowell makes the argument that black underclass have become the mascots of left intellectuals whose real agenda is to score points against American society by exploiting the underclass as a quarter cultural symbol of resistance to hegemony. Right, we've got this new royally, ruling royal elite on the secular left that reigns within the media, the, acad- the academy, the professions, and the government right, that has a symbiotic relationship with the underclass, which is then exploited to symbolize the new class's ex- embrace of avant-garde values. Right, you've got the secular progressive crowd, particularly mainstream media, that glorifies the gangster world, makes money from it, and these white middle-aged ponytail music executives are no better than crack dealers. They know their product dehumanizes its constant customer and encourages awful behavior. Like how many country singers have we seen get murdered? All right. It happens with, you know, rap stars all the time. But uh, people who sing Christian music, country music, they don't tend to get get murdered very much. Right? Listening to country music and uh, Christian music doesn't tend to destroy people same way that uh, rap music seems to bring out the worst in many people. Fake. Right. Yeah. So one of the first substantive chapters is about Mussolini. Ooh. It starts with a similar sort of framing, which I will send you. Mussolini was bad and liberals don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I feel owned. I feel pre-owned like a Toyota by this quote that you're about to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right. He says, if you went solely by what you read in the New York Times or the New York Review of Books or what you learned from Hollywood, you could be forgiven for thinking that Benito Mussolini came to power around the same time as Adolf Hitler or even a little bit later, and that Italian fascism was merely a tardy, watered-down version of Nazism. What? Does the New York Times ever say that? Has the New York yeah. Review of Books ever published that Mussolini came to power after Hitler? Yeah, the, the liberal media doesn't want to admit, like, the basic timeline of when people <laughs> became the heads of state. It's very, it's very baffling to me, but again, he needs to insert this framing such that right. he is, like, telling you the real version of history. Right. Uh, yeah, of course, it's ridiculous to expect that we're going to get the, the the real version of history from Jonah Goldberg. But, you know, in his glib, shallow way, he does make some good points. So the, the mainstream media tries to make us believe that conservative businessmen are uniquely callous to the plight of the poor and the ones most likely to say, you know, let the homeless eat cake. This is cultural propaganda, right? The closest that we get to... You know, the the contempt of the all-powerful monarchs of previous centuries is the cocooned arrogance and self-indulgence that we associate with Hollywood celebrities, right? It's the glitterati of Hollywood who hire out a private retinue of vassals, of tutors, of hangers-on, who recreate private courts no less opulent and self-indulgent than the entourages of 17th century France. So it's the liberal glitterati of Hollywood, not bourgeois conservatives, who travel with full-time aromatherapists masseuses, acupuncturists, and presumably court jesters, right? It's the Hollywood royalty who attempt to recreate the sumptuary laws and rules of grammar through which kings and queens once codified their privilege, right? No CEO would think to bar people from photographing his elbows, as has Jennifer Lopez, or hire an assistant whose only job was to hand him towels, as has Mariah Carey, right? Uh, Conservative businessmen may underpay their workers, but they do not treat them as mere vassals, as did Barbara Streisand when she instructed that employees of the MGM Grant avoid eye contact with her as she performed there. So I 
work for about 18 months as an extra on sets, and pretty much every set they told you not to make eye contact with, with the stars. So Jenna Goldberg occasionally is onto something. I, I would be shocked if you could find a single example of either the New York Times or the New York Review of Books implying or saying outright that Mussolini came to power after Hitler. Right, that basically Mussolini was like in sync to Hitler's Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Worse, a B version. <laughs> that is a real, I, I actually don't know which one was technically first, uh, even though I, I view Backstreet Boys as the OG. The, if someone told me actually in sync was founded first, I wouldn't know that that was wrong. Well, that's because you can't read it in New York Times or New York Review of Books or Hollywood. They don't want to tell you. They don't tell Backstreet you. Backstreet Boys were first. <laughs> they won't admit it. So the Mussolini chapter is actually like a really good microcosm of how the book so Jenna Goldberg does, does make some points, and here's another one. There's virtually no major issue in the culture wars, he says, where big business has played a major role on the American right, while there are dozens of examples of big business, the corporations supporting the liberal side. Think of all the corporations funding and subsidizing Black Lives Matter terrorism. Right? Corporations have accepted the totalitarian logic of diversity gurus, insists that if you aren't actively promoting diversity with goals and timetables, you're actively opposing it. Right? You see, in City Bike, a bike-sharing program established as part of the federal bailout of Citigroup, which is a wasteful program that merely subsidizes the feel-good hipness of those who know better than you, thereby allowing rich and privileged liberals to advertise their environmental benefits. So liberals have largely captured corporate America, so perhaps they're not quite so categorically committed to equality as such. Rather, it's just a, a weapon that they use against the middle class. So our upper class now, our ruling elites, tend to repudiate traditional values and instead sign on to avant-garde ones like diversity and environmentalism. It's the ordinary Americans who continue to resist the liberal left dispensation. operates in general. A mm. lot of it is just describing a smattering of progressive people and institutions who showed various affinities for Mussolini in the 1920s. Mm. So Goldberg is naming journalists and politicians and educational institutions, etc., that admired Mussolini in some regard, uh, which is not inaccurate. Uh, Mussolini was actually quite popular in America in the 1920s. Now, there is no actual data, nor is there an effort to show that Mussolini's popularity was something limited to liberals or even predominantly yeah. liberal. And so I went to his source. And his primary source is John Patrick Diggins, a historian who wrote a seminal book in the early 1970s called Mussolini and Fascism, The View from America. Okay. The heart of Diggins's book is just giving examples of literally hundreds of... Yeah, okay. Jenna Goldberg is shoddy, not, not very smart, a lousy scholar, but he's got a glib way with words and sometimes he makes some good points. So he talks about secularist group like People for the American Way which is continually trying to shrink the public space for traditional religion and instead is building the foundations of a secular counter-church of liberalism. Yeah, a good point. That's from his book, Liberal Fascism. So what Jenna Goldberg's trying to do is track the subterranean totalitarian impulses of the liberal left. Right. So progressives, people on the left, want to smash the wall of separation between church and state and essentially drive the church, drive religion out of the public square. So with religious reform, you had, with the rise of Protestantism, you had 
the rise of this attitude that uh, you know God primarily belongs in your heart and should then you know pervade all of you, all of your thinking, all of your impulses. And this Protestant ethic has been transmuted through modern liberalism. So there's now this this totalitarian ideology that our heart should be transformed so that we're never racist, we're not bigoted, we're always reflexive, meaning always monitoring our own words, our own behavior, monitoring it against how could it possibly affect you know any of you know twenty seven different racially oppressed groups. So you've got these these Protestant impulses whereby your heart is shifted and all your natural impulses have been disciplined and edited so that you just live a life that's wholly aligned with the Lord, but now instead you live a life that's wholly aligned with expertise. So Hillary Clinton is kind of a direct descendant of the social gospel movement of the 1920s, right? The Christian language and imagery is no longer in vogue, but the same agenda is now defended through a secularized vocabulary of hope and change. So those who claim cultural oppression by the liberal left, they will point out that liberal left ideals are just post-hoc rationalizations for otherworldly religious passions seeking a this-worldly incantation. So if you really want to understand the meaning of contemporary liberalism, then look for it in the sober musings of John Locke or Immanuel Kant or John Stuart Mill, but look for it in the perverse will to secularize religious impulses that should not be secularized. The liberalism on its face is hostile to the separation of church and state. You know, it's hostile to you know, ignorant Bible thumpers, but is itself ignorant of its own intellectual heritage. So in this part of the conservative agenda, it's conservatives who carry the mantle of secularism, for it is they, not liberals, who demand that there should be a higher wall of separation between church and state. So conservatives would interject religion into public life by asking for a seasonal nativity scene or a few moments of voluntary school prayer. But liberals want to erect an entire political, social, cultural order on the foundation of the do-goodery, which was once considered the proper purview of churches and synagogues. Right? It's the liberal left who now seeks the more thoroughgoing imposition of these do-gooder values through their redistributive economic schemes and through the massive civil rights industrial complex of American people and institutions who were either supporters or opponents of Mussolini. Mm. Diggins makes it clear that this was from across the political spectrum. To give some examples, he talks about how the largest pro-fascist outlet in the 1920s in America was probably a conservative paper, the Saturday Evening Post, massive circulation. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, The Nation, the liberal magazine, was one of the most vociferous anti-fascist publications of the decade. Mm. And the New York Times was one of the first major publications to identify Italy as a dictatorship. What yes, on a literal level, Jenna Goldberg's book is ridiculous. As a work of scholarship, it is ridiculous. As a work of history, it is ridiculous. As a work of psychoanalysis, it makes some good points. So Jenna Goldberg writes that uh, modern liberalism is a religion of state worship whose sacrificial Christ is John F. Kennedy, and whose Pauline architect was Lyndon Baines Johnson, right? Liberals do not couch their commitments in religious terms, but what really matters is the substance of their agenda, not the words that they use to describe it. So secular liberalism may ostensibly be less codified than various religious theologies, but it is this informality 
It is simply the measure of the disingenuousness, disingenuousness, the deception of the modern liberal left project. What Goldberg is doing is going through that book and handpicking out the progressives who supported Mussolini and just ignoring the conservatives. Yeah. And it's clearly intentional because there's no way you could read Diggins in good faith and just miss them. Yeah, Goldberg's a lousy scholar, but in his glib way, he makes some good points. He says, you'll find environmentally themed hotels in California that have replaced the Bible in all their rooms with Al Gore's inconvenient truth. Anyone with kids certainly understands how the invocations to reduce, reuse, recycle are now taught like catechisms in schoolrooms across the country. So the liberal environment science, right, is really a product of a theological perversion. We now have a church of apocalyptic man-made global warming that has a holy scripture that you cannot question, as well as high priests whose interpretations are infallible and whose sermons warn of hellfire, rising oceans, and plagues as punishment for our sins. So why are environmentalists so obstinate and dogmatic? Because they have confused and confounded the secular and the profane. They use secular concerns to channel what are basically religious impulses that they reject in their original form, but are now transmuted and recapitulated in their secular idealism. One of the most notable pro-Mussolini figures in the country at the time was Richard Washburn Child, a Republican political operative who would go on to help ghostwrite Mussolini's autobiography. Then there's the fact that the conservative Coolidge administration... So yeah, what did happen to Eki Lux? So he lived in Los Angeles, man of the right, come on the show regularly and talk about how you know Texas was going to turn blue any moment. What happened to that bloke? So David Horowitz also sees the residues of Christian theology in politically correct left-wing education. Right, UC Santa Cruz has a course that requires students to perform sections from the feminist play The Vagina Monologues. Right, a little bit like procedures in religious monasteries during the Middle Ages when students are required to perform morality plays exemplifying church doctrine. The liberals present this as progressive, hands-on, or student-centered education, but it's really a contemporary variant of an essentially religious ambition. The people on the left are not content to merely present and argue their liberal left opinions. They want to inculcate them through a secularized religious discipline, which they refuse to acknowledge as such. So we have the rise of the modern research university, which claims to have eclipsed the sectarian Christian denominational colleges of their origins, but the spirit of the latter has been reborn in the future. What you now have on secular left-wing university campuses is a secularized version of the church school whose purpose was to train students in a religious creed. This is why the dominant forces in academia today see academic freedom and intellectual, true intellectual diversity as threats to their calling, right? What uh, people on the liberal left imagine as their revolutionary or transformative projects are simply secularized iterations of what was once called you know, redemption or salvation. But redemption now, for our dominant elite, means redemption from conservatism, from traditional folkways from people who cling to their guns and religion, who want to homeschool their kids. Coordinated with Mussolini's government to prosecute anti-fascist labor activists in America, mm. and then only back down after a campaign of pressure 
from liberal media outlets and labor, I could just cherry pick a few anecdotes like this and write a whole yeah. book called Conservative Fascism or whatever, and it would be just as dishonest as what Goldberg is doing. He's casting it as accepted by one side, but it's actually accepted by everybody. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've been sitting on that. I haven't been listening for the last couple of minutes. I've just been sitting on that. I know, I'm, always, I'm always struck with these arguments that it's like it's so much less fucking interesting. That's the thing. I ended up reading Biggins' book almost in full, and it's and uh, Jenna Goldberg, in his glib, superficial way, has another good observation here. It's only when conservatives have the upper hand on some cultural issue do liberals then insist that politics should only be about bread and butter issues. Only bread and butter issues are serious issues. It's the economy. Stupid. But when liberals are on the offense, then it's all about racial quotas. Then it's all about mainstreaming gay culture. Then it's all about scrubbing the public square of Christianity and a host of explicitly cultural ambitions. So liberals claim to be all pragmatic and just just about the economy, but they only do that when they're on the defense. Right? When they go on the offense, then they love the culture wars. Like culture wars now are a term of derision in the media. Culture wars are a term of derision by the elites. Culture wars are a term of derision overwhelmingly by academics, by our social betters, by the people with the most prestigious positions in society. They loathe the culture wars. That's because for the first time in my memory, the left seems to be consistently losing the culture wars. Once the left starts winning culture wars, once again, then all these same people will embrace culture wars as you know, necessary forms of secularized redemption and salvation from the burdens of traditional folkways, traditional definitions of family, and from conservatism. It's fascinating. People should read it. Yeah. You're not going to learn anything from Goldberg because Goldberg is sitting down trying to get from point A to point B, and that means expressly ignoring a shitload of the history that he's reading. I like that you do retain the capacity to enjoy books. It well, bad. I was reading it out of anger. Uh, <laughs> the best reading. I went to the source and I was like, I knew he was lying. This, yeah. this motherfucker. And then I continued to read. And like, <laughs> I got you, you motherfucker. You lying people. Yeah. Jonah Goldberg is a terrible scholar. Right. But so, so are many of our dominant elites. Right. Most conservatives are not great scholars. They don't have well thought out political philosophies. But. They have an intuitive sense that this stance, a dispassionate scientific disengagement that our dominant elites, particularly those in the media, particularly academics who appear in the media, you know, put forward that they're just dispassionate scientific, you know, disengaged pursuers of truth and pragmatic advancement, right? That this is a performance, that this is a deceptive and self-deceptive histrionic mimicry of real disengagement. It's just a method by which they subtly announce their moral and cognitive superiority over those who hold to a traditional conception of life. So it's not surprising that those who are not on the left find themselves infuriated at the liberal left's smug assertions that they are simply pragmatists, that they are just fact-finders, that they are simply empiricists who are clear-headed as to what works. Right. This is all in reaction to liberals' claims to strategic agency, to their claims to the power of reason to guide their lives, their presumption that they have, by virtue of their rationality, transcended the background structures of significance to which conservatives remain beholden. See, those on the left understand themselves as liberated from earlier confining horizons, illusions, and limitations of knowledge, 
that continue to compromise conservatives. So one way of understanding the, the left-right difference is that people on the right are more medieval than people on the left. But uh, conservatives have a sense that what liberals mistake for their rational transcendence of all hero systems is in fact simply the expression of a particular hero system. Just another partisan lens for approaching life. And it is this lying, this deception, this disingenuous, disingenuousness that permits the liberal left elite to accrue undeserved social prestige. So people like Jonah Goldberg, in their clumsy, shoddy way, are trying to expose the liberal left's ideals of disengagement as surreptitious forms of engagement, to expose how the shapes through which these liberal left ideals assume in concrete practice are surreptitiously informed by a subjective hero system every bit as subjective as any right-wing hero system. I can only read if I'm doing it with the purpose of trying to feel smarter than the author of another book. Yeah, the the way to get Americans reading again, spite. I'm going to hit you with a... So I am drawing from Ronnie Goodman's book, uh, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, his work in progress, and then uh, elaborating on it at times. And I think my voice changes sufficiently when I go from reading to extemporizing that you can sense the difference. Another chapter title here. Okay. (laughs) chapter two adolf hitler colon man of the left hell yeah other than the vegetarianism how the fuck is he getting there what do you mean other than the vegetarianism (laughs) michael (laughs) okay that's ridiculous the nazis were definitely a party of the right adolf hitler was a man of the right and i'm all tuckered out that will do it for tonight take care bye bye